You're listening to The Director's Box, a football business podcast. Here are your hosts, Raphael Geller and Jesse Forstott. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse and I'm here with Raphael Geller. And today on The Director's Box, we're going to be talking with former Aston Villa goalkeeper and current Fox Australia pundit, Mark Bosnich. Today we'll be covering a few different topics. The history and transformation of the different leagues in Australian football, the types of players the A-League attracts, and the youth development of Australian players and the allure of Europe. Mark Bosnitz began his playing career in 1989, signing with Manchester United, and would go on to make more than 200 Premier League appearances with Aston Villa and Chelsea. He returned home to Australia to finish his professional playing career with the Central Coast Mariners in 2008. Mark now works as an analyst for Fox Sports Football. He's definitely my go-to guy on everything Australian football. It was really great talking to him, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing in Australia? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Raphael, and, and Jess is there as well. Um, so far, so good here in Australia. It, we've got just underneath 7,000 cases. Unfortunately, I think there's been close to, I think, 90 deaths. But the good news is, in, in the state that I live in, New South Wales, in the city of Sydney, um, we've got the most cases in Australia, over 3,000 cases. But over the last 24 hours, there's been zero. So um, but that's really good news. And, and tomorrow on the 1st of May, um, the state government here is going to start to relax a few of the uh, rules that have been in place for lockdown. Uh, the, the biggest one being that basically, um, you know, yourself and your partner and your extended family, I think, i.e. meaning your, your children, which I have two of, are allowed to go visit their, their, their grandparents as long as they keep a social distance and, uh, and they be careful. So that's good news. Um, but uh, I still believe that we've got a way to go. And the Australian people have been absolutely phenomenal. They've really reacted well, and there's hope that we can keep this going, and, and people can keep keep it going as best they possibly can worldwide, so we can uh, so we can come at the end of this tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. I'm ha- I'm happy to hear that uh, there's some restrictions being eased, and that mm. things are getting better there. Um, yeah. Well, we're we're very excited for this for this episode. Last episode, we really focused on the history of football in America, and. Uh, before yeah. we brought you on, oh, Jesse and I were talking about that the MLS and the A-League have a lot of similarities in the sense that there's mm. no um, relegation promotion and, and many other things that yeah. are very similar. But let's, let's kind of, for those, let's assume that people are listening to not know much about Australian football and they want to learn more. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about uh, the, NA, the NSL, the National Soccer League, the predecessor yeah. to the A-League? What was different from the NSL to the to the current A-League, how, how did people view the NSL? If you could just explain us the history of, of football in, in Australia. Yeah. yeah, of course, right. I mean, I, I hope people are going to understand. I was born in 1972. Uh, the National Soccer League, I think, began in 1977. Before that, it was state-based. So in Australia, we have, uh, we have six states and we have two territories. Um, so before the, the, the advent of the of the National Soccer League, it was just state-based. And then when the National Soccer League came in, uh, predominantly a lot of the clubs were ethnic-based. Uh, we have a wonderful multicultural society here, and, and a lot of those clubs were formed by the migrants who came over uh, from all over the world, but specifically, you have to say, from Europe uh, at the end of the Second World War. And, uh, and a lot of those clubs that, that they formed were social clubs, which really helped all the people assimilate into Australian culture. And, uh, and obviously, a part of that culture they brought over with, with all of them was football. So 
you had those clubs then basically being transformed uh, into from social clubs into football clubs. So you had the likes of, you know, there was Marconi, who was an Italian-based club. You had uh, Sydney Harcoa, who was a Jewish-based club. Uh, you had in Melbourne, you had uh, South Melbourne, which was a Greek-based club. Sydney Olympic, a Greek-based club. Uh, Brisbane Lions uh, up in Queensland, which is a Dutch-based club. And, and also a sprinkling of, of you know, Australian-Australian clubs, if you like, as well. Uh, that made it very, very difficult uh, at, at that time, I think. Um, I mean, I, I was only young, but I wouldn't really know uh, to sort of sell it to the mainstream because uh, as uh, uh, very similar to America, the, the main sports here are Australian rules football, uh, rugby league, uh, cricket, and then comes, you could say, football and, and probably rugby union. So that, 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 was, that was a bit of an issue. But so for a young boy growing up, you know, who was born here, you know, it was a top league. Uh, it was part-time, um, but uh, the standard that produced, considering it was part-time, uh, w- was excellent. And uh, and what we did have a lot of back then um, was the likes of my father and, 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 you know, his ilk. You know, he would work, you know, a very, very hard job from five in the morning till three or four in the afternoon and come home and take the likes of myself and, and my cousins or what to training. And also because they had that football knowledge would, you know, basically volunteer their time. And looking back now, that was absolutely invaluable. Um, and the, I think that the result of that was the fact that, that we did produce so many really good players uh, during that system and during that time. Eventually, it had to evolve. Um, you know, I, Again, I wasn't here. I left the country in 1988 and I didn't return to 2008. And when I returned, it was quite ironic, really. It was like sort of coming from one memory to, to another place. And by that time, the NSL had fallen over, um, mainly through financial reasons. And uh, so Frank Lowy came in, who's one of Australia's most successful stories and, and businessmen, and took on the league. He'd always loved football. He had a connection before with Sydney Harcoa. And, and you know, revamped it and called it the A-League, which was then based specifically on cities, um, the capital cities of pretty much every state. I think there were only eight teams when it first started way back in 2005, 2006. And since then, it's, it's sort of... It's, it's evolved. Uh, it's, it's sort of, you know, gone this way, gone that way. Um, there's no doubt that there has been a lot of critics of it for, for a variety of reasons. There's been people are saying stagnated and so forth. But overall, regardless, I think what anyone says, I, I think the actual concept and the way that it's come about, although there were people, like I said before, who were a little bit unhappy with the way that things ended, but I wasn't here, so I can't really comment exactly about all, all the details and so forth. What happened had to happen. And now we're at this point, obviously, with this, a terrible virus which is going, you know, all around the world where you know, people are still unsure how it's supposed to go forward. There's been a massive push, as there has been, uh, Jesse will tell you, in the United States as well for promotion relegation, which I actually started saying about six or seven years ago. And I yeah. truly believe in that. I should have it should be decided, you know, by sporting merit. However, it must be said right now at this moment in time, this is coming from one of the greatest proponents of promotion relegation in Australia being me and, and in my position as a commentator on Fox Force Australia, I had that stage to actually con- you know, continue to say because I do believe that you know, it's, it's a good thing overall. But after this virus and the fact that we don't know what's going to happen, and we've already seen in Mexico, we've already seen in quite a few places around the world saying that there will be no relegation for the foreseeable future, I don't really know whether or not it will be feasible, but I don't really know what's going to go on full stop. It, it sort of really does throw all the chips in the air, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very uncertain time for so many leagues in the world. You know, we spoke yeah. about this with Giannis that I feel like the, the big leagues will find a way to be okay, but some of the, the smaller leagues in Europe, which, which bring a lot of joy and passion to a lot of countries, they're really yeah. going to struggle. But let's get back kind of to the beginning of, of 
your career, just to understand how things work. Because, you know, everyone knows about you. Everyone knows your career. But I really want to understand how you go from a team, a team like Sydney, Croatia, that's, you know, not, not a very professional setting, not to, to be rude, to Manchester yeah. United. What's, what is the story behind a player being able to make that transition? Yeah, well, the, the story is quite simple. As I was saying about those inaugural teams, and, and then obviously new teams come in. And one of those new teams that come in was Sydney, Croatia. And ironically, the community team that I played for was called Hayduk. And a kilometre away was Marconi, who I then went to. And then another kilometre away in that same area was the Sydney, Croatia, who are now in the National Soccer League. Um, and you know from my last name, um, my father was born in what was then Yugoslavia and, and now Croatia. And uh, when he, he came out here to Australia in 1959, so I had that connection. But the biggest link out of the, those whole three, and which is a major part of my story, was an ex-international goalkeeper by the name of Ron Corrie, who at age 12, I'd gone to a soccer camp and he was doing the goalkeeping sessions and basically said, would you come up and train with Marconi with the first team? So I started training not only with him as a goalkeeper, but also with, with the first team as well, occasionally playing a, a five-a-side game, occasionally taking shots in shooting practice. And then when he went from Marconi to Sydney, Croatia, I basically went with him. It was so important for my development, like... Uh, you know, a great, I guess a great teacher that you have for, for playing piano or something like that, that all of a sudden goes somewhere else and you know how important that is. So uh, I went there and I continued to play two years above my age, which was, which was, which was about right and continued to train uh, with the first team. Although they, like, like, we, like we just said, they were part time. They were as professional as they could be. And at that time, what was then Yugoslav international and player for Hedel called Vedran Rozic was the coach. And, uh, and he was absolutely fantastic as well. And, in 1987, we went on a family holiday, like I said, uh, to back to Croatia. Um, well, 1987, it was then called Yugoslavia, but back to Croatia. My dad is from an island called Portula. And uh, at the end of that holiday, we were planning to go with my mother and father and sister to, to London. Just, you know, mum and uh, especially my sister wanted to obviously go see all the, the great sites that you can see in London. And there's a gentleman here by the name of Alan Best, uh, who, was a, who was an ex-professional in the UK and was a fantastic coach, uh, not only here in Australia, but in Asia who had a very good contact with, a, with the youth team coach at Liverpool called Malcolm Cook. So he turned around and just said to us, why are you there in London? Why don't you take the bus up to Merseyside and, and go for a couple of days at Liverpool and see how you go? So my father and I did that. And I had three days, which were you know, just absolutely fantastic. It, it, it must have been destiny. And, uh, and Liverpool at that time, you know, who, who were the most successful club by far you know, then, you know, Kenny Dalglish had said afterwards, you know, why don't you stay? My father wanted me to come home to Australia to finish off schooling. So this was like in September 1987. In that interim period, when I came home between September 1990, uh, sorry, 1987 and March, it was then in 1988, the late Eddie Thompson, who was a coach here, had a, a strong connection with Sir Alex Ferguson. So he arranged a trial for me to go to Manchester United in March 1988. And basically at the end of that trial, Sir Alex sort of locked me in his room and said, you're signing with us. That was it. So from July 1988, I was off to start my apprenticeship in English football. <laughs> Out of all the, the, ma the two managers that you got uh, your beginning with, Sir, Sir Kenny and Sir Alex, that's pretty yeah. remarkable. Um, and yeah, there's been a lot of players nice. who made that transition from Australia to very... Mm -hmm. Uh, high level very quickly how did yeah. you adapt from from going to semi-professional australia to to being at 
one of the best clubs in the world. Well, well, looking back and from a physical perspective and from a playing perspective, quite good because uh, even though I was only training probably three or four nights a week as a young lad here in Australia and because the weather's so good, you could do so many other things. So, I, you know, from a physical perspective, I'm a ball of energy. You can probably tell by the way I talk. And so, so that was okay. The, the biggest the biggest uh, shock, um, although the cultures of Australia and England are very similar, I know England is the mother country of Australia. So the cultures are very similar. The language is the same, but the weather is very, very different. Um, and a lot of people might laugh, but it's, it, it's, it's a big thing. You know, when, you, you know, when you're going, when you're used to going on a pitch when it's lovely and, and playing and all that, all of a sudden, you know, you, you're going at 10 o'clock in the morning and your mouth is freezing over and trainers are saying to you, warm up. You think to yourself, what do you mean warm up? Or warm up? How am I supposed to warm up here? Uh, that can take a lot of time to get used to. And obviously being away from my family was difficult as well. But you, I, you, I got through it and, uh, and I learned so much. I was so, so lucky um, it, to be at a club that was starting something, uh, you know, under Sir Alex. And there were some great, great players there like Brian Robson. You know, comes to Mark Hughes, Paul McGrath, and his time was there. Brian McClare, and so much to learn of, of so many. And you know, the late Eric Harrison, who was a, f- a famous youth team manager, and and the late Brian Whitehouse, a reserve team manager, just learned so much from them day in, day out, playing against different teams, different conditions, you know, at different times. And I was fortunate enough as well to to play th- um, three first team games. I made my debut at Old Trafford at 18, uh, and like I said, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, and then of course, as uh, as we all know, you went on to have a very successful career in, in England, mainly with Aston Villa, Villa Park. What's what's interesting, and maybe what we could get into next, Mark, is that the time that you spent um, with Aston Villa with United during that time is when the A League was was founded, right in two thousand five, yeah. I believe, and yeah, around two thousand five, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So when you were when first when you were over in England, did you? How closely? I'm sure closely, but what was it like hearing about the development of the A League and what what was your perception of it? Yeah. Were you ever tempted to go back before you did? Yeah, no, I wasn't tempted to go back. I, I without sounding uh, in any type of way disrespectful, was you know I was always close. I always used to speak to my parents and friends as as much as I possibly could, but I wasn't say all over it. I was you know that involved in what I was doing over there, and you know I always wanted the best for Australian football, like I like I do now. But um, I always had that feeling that. You know, being so far away, I I wasn't I was involved in English football. That's where I made my bones. That's that's where I went when I was younger. So I always felt a little bit reluctant to to comment or you know to say anything when I'm when I'm actually not there in the middle of it. I'm not experienced. I know there was difficult times. You know, and speaking to excuse me, some of the players when I came back in 2008 who'd experienced you know the end of the NSL when it like I said from a financial perspective it fell over. And hearing some of the stories of how difficult it was, I felt really sorry for them. And like I said, I was then glad in a way that I, you know, didn't sort of say anything or, or whatever, because it would have been so easy for people to turn around and say, so who are you to say, you know, you're living, you know, 15,000 kilometers away, which would have been a fair comment as well. So I wasn't all over it. And it was only really un- until I got back and began to, to sort of, you know, to, to get involved in it, really. And what were you hearing at the time? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what you were hearing about the financials or just what you know from your experience about how the league started financially? What kind of, what kind of money were the players making? Yeah. What did the league start off on, no, uh, yeah. on even footing? I, that all I heard um, basically was what, say what you would hear, for example, if a new league was starting in a far off place that, that, that you know, us three sort of, you know, wouldn't be all over. So I, I didn't really hear anything like that. All I, all I knew um, and now, you know, begun to know is that there was, uh, I think, eight franchises. Sydney um, is the biggest city in Australia. Melbourne, uh, Melbourne Victory was still there. Adelaide, Perth, 
Central Coast, which is about an hour away from Sydney, and Newcastle, which is about two hours away from Sydney, and Queensland Raw, which now is called Brisbane Raw. So I think that's eight. Hopefully that's eight. Somebody who's listening will will, will, uh, will, will let me know, I'm sure, if, if, if it was an eight. So there was a, basically a team in every major city, like I said, and there would be no promotion relegation. And uh, they uh, struck a deal up with my current employers, Fox Sports Australia, um, which was a you know, it was satellite television. It was the first time in, in the game's history that they'd been on satellite TV. Games were live. And the feeling that I got when I eventually, and I will, we'll talk about that if you want to, when I eventually met the two delegates uh, who came with the Australian team in early 2008, they were playing a friendly in London at Craven Cottage against Nigeria. And uh, two, or one board member and another who was who was very high up, John Bolby and Phil Walansky, the other board member said, would you come and meet us? I said, yeah, pleasure. So my friend and I went to meet them, talk about them. And they were talking about what I consider coming back. And I did say to them, are you sure you want me back? It's, by the sounds of things, sound... <laughs> Things sounds like they're going really, really well. I've got more luggage than the Queen. And I said, no, no, you should come back. So by listening to them then, it was a, it was a really good feeling. Australia had just qualified for their first World Cup in 32 years and performed so well in Germany in 2006. The A-League had started. And from all the sounds of things, and then when I came to see with my own eyes, it was a really good feeling about it. Looking, looking back at start of the league, the MLS really struggled at the beginning. That was something that was mm. really a problem. They were bleeding money, but they had the vision and they had kind of the, they knew where they wanted to be in 20 years. Australia is the, the biggest sport is not uh, football by any means. And you could even yeah. say it's not even the top two or three. At the beginning of the yeah. league, did the league struggle to, to attract supporters or people that would be big supporters of this league long term? From what I've uh, garnished since I've, uh, you know, the information that I've gained since I've been here and the, the very little that I had back then, but more so, since I've come back here and spoken to to people, uh, the answer to that question is no. It, um, it, it really took off. You know, there there was, you know, really good crowds. Um, you know, sort of you know new competition, new team, live television. Um, and like I said, from all from all the people I've spoken to here, the the answer to that question is no. It, it really did. It took off like a like a rocket. Um, you know, there there was uh, I think one game. I think it might have been season two when people told me when Sydney played Melbourne game. I think it might have been season two when people told me when Sydney played Melbourne um, in Melbourne at, at a stadium, um, which is now called Marvel Stadium. I think it was called Etihad Stadium back then. And it was like 52,000 people. So so the answer to that question is, is definitely no. Uh, like I said, that from all reports and from everyone I'd spoken to, and uh, you know, the league had really taken off like a rocket. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. Uh, just because we know how mm. much the MLS struggled, and uh, mm. it's, it's it's I don't know. I, I've always looked at these two leagues as very similar. Obviously, the United States is a much bigger country, but I always see yeah. them very similar just based on the salary cap model. There's not many leagues in the world mm. that do that. Um, what, what's really interesting is also the India Super League, which was just launched a few years ago, seemed to to mm. copy what the A League was doing. So it looked like the A League copied mm. what MLS was doing. And now the India Super League is stopping what the what the A League is doing. So it's kind of you know the circle of life. But let's get yeah. back to to after your career uh, in in England. You had a very successful career there. You come back. You're at the end of your career. It's not the not the middle. It's the end of your career. When you first came back, what what did you think about this league? What we're looking now at twelve years ago. What were your thoughts on where yeah, the league well, will be in a few years? Yeah, I, look, I was really excited. And, and like I said, you know, leaving in 1988 when it was part-time and seeing it now 
from now back then, say 2008. So like I said, it was like being a, a little bit in a time machine. Um, I was like, wow, this, this is really good. And I'd spent some time just training and getting myself in shape with a championship side QPR, Queens Park Rangers, just before I came back to Australia. And then um, people asked me about the standard and all that. And, and Queens Park Rangers at that time had just been taken over by um, the ex-Formula One head, Bernie Eccleston and Flavio Briatore. And I think, I, don't, I can't remember his first name, but the, the Indian Steel by Mita was also involved. So they started to splash the money to get a lot of really good players in. And I said, I said, look, Queen's Park Rangers are, are one of the favourite for promotion into the Premier League. And so far, after playing six, I played about four or five games here in Australia. The boys that I'd trained with and had played against, I said, you know, there was no one at QPR. They weren't any worse than the ones at QPR that... They're as good as any of the ones at QPR. And I've seen the league for the last 12 years have its ups and downs in, in, you know, from all perspective, but I've seen the standard gradually improve. And I think that was inevitable because of the main thing is the fact that they're becoming full-time professionals. Now, you would get a lot of people here, to be fair, in Australia who would argue that point with me vehemently, but I've watched pretty much every game for 12 years. And, and if there's one thing in, in this life that I do know quite well, it's football. And I can really put my hand on my heart and say the standard has, has gradually improved, you know, step by step. But like I said, at, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about, you know, how long things take. And, you know, patience is, is like gold dust these days for anything. And, you know, things take time. And like I said, there's a lot of people. And, and there's no doubt, I, I would say probably in the last three seasons, maybe there's been a little bit of stagnation with, with a lot of things. And maybe in terms of the standard, but I still believe that the standard has gradually got better. But just like losing weight, as I, I know a lot about, you know, those last five kilos are, are the hardest and like I said and I think from the purely football perspective which is what what I know the standard has definitely improved bit by bit definitely seems as we said that it's a league on the rise especially um, over the last decade so you just said Mark you've been you've watched every match for the last 12 years I think a good way and it's definitely not the only way but a good way to to gauge the level of a league and how a league is doing is looking at the the foreign talent that it attracts so can yes. you give us an idea especially right. over the last decade it had given how much Australian football you've seen. What, what, what have you seen uh, in terms of the foreigners? Maybe uh, what, well, what leagues I, players I, were yeah, coming I, from and where they're coming from now? Yeah, I, I've seen the good and the bad. But, you know, w- with any signing, whether it be a foreign signing or whether it be a local signing, there's always a risk. Uh, we've had big names. At, were, were quite obviously, some of them who had come were, were not quite the players that they once were. Uh, but they added their value. We, we've had star, star names. And when I say star names, I mean, the one, uh, Alessandro Del Piero was absolutely outstanding when he was here, um, not only the way he played, but for the league as well and, and for its profile. Uh, and we've had, you know, ones that, you know, no one ever heard of before, but have ended up being some of the greatest players that we've had here during this A-League period. And, and Thomas Broich comes to mind, a journeyman from Germany who come over and, and really wowed the crowds with his skill and his level of play for Brisbane Raw. Uh, another one was uh, Bessart Berisha, you know, who'd been scouted in, in, in Germany, who was of Albanian heritage. And, uh, and you know, they've, they've been unbelievable. There's been other ones who are sort of, you know, maybe not in the Del, well, definitely not in the Del Piero League in terms of what they achieved during their career. But like Shinji Ono, who still played in Europe, a Japanese player for, for Western Sydney Wanderers, who was outstanding. Emil Heskey came over, who everyone will know from his Premier League days with Leicester and Liverpool and, and Villa and, and so forth. And, and the most recent one, you have to say, is, uh, is Milos Ninkovic. And a lot of people know about the Serbian international, played in Ukraine, um, and also played for Red Star Belgrade, and struggled in the first season because the other thing to take in consideration is that we do play here in the summer, so, so not to clash with other sports. So a lot of the times, the foreign players take a little bit of time to adapt because even though the majority of the time we're kicking off later at night, it's still very, very hot. 
And that's a very, very difficult thing to adapt to. A little bit like I was talking about me adapting to the weather when I first went to England. But, you know, he's been absolutely outstanding for the last three years or so. So, um, you know, there's been others that have come in sort of thought, okay, maybe not for them or whatever. But it's very, very difficult because of that summer thing, because it's so far away. The grounds are harder down here as well to judge whether or not a player, you know, is going to, to sort of make a real difference. I do believe from my experience in the Premier League that, you know, the, the more and more better foreigners that you got in the standard improves uh, and and that's my belief i have a lot of debates of a lot of people over here i had one the other night with a friend of mine you know because you know was saying after this situation there should be only three foreigners as far as i'm concerned i'd go the other way i should always i believe it shouldn't you know, it shouldn't matter where you're born it should be on merit really um but when it comes down to merit you know like you know it's very very difficult these days sometimes because the sender Somebody say a trusted scout here from Australia all the way maybe to, I don't know, to Italy or whatever. It's, it's not as easy than if you're based a lot closer to Europe and you can just turn around and say, all right, take a two-hour flight from London to Rome or something like that. So there's obviously those considerations. But in terms of foreigners overall, you know, I think they've been a success and they've added colour to the league. And, and I think that's really, really important that if you want to talk in terms of, you know, a lot of people talk in terms of corporate terms and the profile and this, that and the other. Well, if you want to talk in terms of profile and, and adding to you, you've got to have a good product. And I believe that, you know, you've got no control over where you're born. But what you do have control of is how good you are at what you do. Players, it should only be down to one thing, and that's merit. I definitely agree with you. And going back to what you said a couple of minutes ago, I'm also an advocate of that shouldn't matter about the number of foreigners in the league. It should matter about the players. And if mm. the best players are foreigners, then, then you should have foreigners. Because at the end of the day, the, the foreigners that come to your league bring experience from where they came and they help the domestic guys mm. no matter where that is in the world. Uh, a question that, that yeah. always seems to come up in, in circles with agents and, and people are trying to understand more about uh, the A-League is why are there so many players from the United Kingdom? Uh, there's, you always yeah. see teams, they, they love those guys who are championship players, mm. guys who played in the Premier League or maybe in the championship. There's yeah. some teams that you look, you know, 50% of their foreign squad are these guys. Why are yeah. these guys so attractive either to, to A-League owners or A-League sporting directors or yeah. A-League managers? Well, first and foremost, England is Australia's mother country. So we have very, very strong ties you know, with England. Um, and that's just from cultural perspective. And the influence of, of the Premier League and before that, the first division is absolutely huge and always has been huge down here. So there's that real strong connection. In terms of, uh, as well as, uh, because of that cultural connection, settling in, is, it, it makes it far more easier. We share the same language and pretty much the same culture as well. So there is that, that is a, a massive thing. And the other thing, it comes down to the individual coaches, really. You know, a lot of the coaches have a lot of good ties to, to all places around the world, but specifically, obviously, to the, like I said, to, to our mother country. So, so that comes in. And, and look, you know, each, each coach is different and, and they have their likes and their dislikes. When the pressure's on, people generally go for what they feel they know and what they're comfortable with. And I think that's probably the best explanation that I can think of. The bottom line is it doesn't matter where somebody's from. It's a matter of uh, you know, how good they are and what they do on the park. And that's the most important thing. And there's also no guarantee wherever you get somebody from England or wherever you get somebody from Luxembourg or Chile or wherever it may be, Canada or whatever, that they are going to perform. Because there's so many other things to take into consideration, style of play. Like I said to you before about the weather, um, the travel as well. And 
and that that's something. I mean, to go from Sydney to Perth, um, which is from East Coast to West Coast in Australia, it's, it's four and a half, five hours. So that's very difficult. And we have a team as well from New Zealand. That was the other team I missed out before when I said the first eight teams, there was a team from New Zealand. So we have a team called the Wellington Phoenix. You know, when Perth play Wellington Phoenix, that's another two hours. It's like seven hour journey. So those are all things that, that you've got to take into consideration. And, and some players eventually adapt to it. I spoke about the experience of Milos Ninkovic, um, you know, whose first season was a little bit, you know, everyone's going, oh, you know, this, that and the other. But then he's been absolutely outstanding for three years on the trot, basically. And, and they get it. And the other players sort of just think, OK, this is a little bit too much for me or for whatever reason, and they just move on. But coming back to the original thing, that for me, like I said, growing up in Australia, one of the great things that we had here on our television was the match of the day, BBC match of the day, and that great famous music and all that. And so it played such a big part and a massive influence in, in all our careers of those people growing up during that era. It's also interesting, people really talk about the lifestyle. That's a word that I hear all the time. Players want to go there for yeah. the lifestyle. And the, the salaries, I would say, you know, with the salary cap, I think it's up to $3 million right now. The salaries aren't massive in the A-League. So when you're getting some of these guys to go from the championship to, to the A-League. Mm. A lot of them, from what I know, appear to be taking pay cuts, but a lot of them are mm. taking pay cuts because they believe that it's a good lifestyle for their family, that some of these mm. cities, not even just Sydney and Melbourne, because a lot of people talk about those cities, but even yeah. other cities are very good for families and very good for players to end their career. Does that yeah. bother you, though, that sometimes people use that as kind of a, I want to come for the lifestyle. I don't want to come to improve the league. I don't want to come for yeah. the football. I want to come for the lifestyle. It doesn't bother me as, as long as, as long, as long as they realize that because people ask them you know why here why australia and i mean you seem to be more all over the salary thing than i am i think it's around there anyway and invariably that comes out it's a great country australia is a great country it's a very lucky country and like you said there's other great cities brisbane is thriving you know perth adelaide or there's fantastic cities all around australia not just Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, invariably, that the lifestyle that's come up, that's, uh, it's only natural. But as long as they realise that they will be judged when they're on the pitch of what they do on the pitch. And I think they do realise that. It's no joke. The boys down here are, are super, super fit. And they're used to playing in the in the type of heat that they are playing. And you know, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I, I really just, for me, it's like they can say what they want. I, I don't pretty much listen to what they say. It's more what they do on the park, which really interests me as a, as a commentator and analyst for Fox Sports. Absolutely. You're right. You see the growth of the league and how team, how there's expansion. We'll get to that in a second. I think Jesse had a, a question. What you were just saying, Mark, is really interesting to me. I know we keep making the comparison between Australia and the United States, but one thing that, that is really heavily debated in the United States is what effect MLS and the American system in general has on the development of young American players. So I'd be, yeah. I'd be curious to hear what you think the A-League, how the Australian system is set up, whether that's good, bad, yeah. maybe maybe remains to be seen. The jury is still out on how it affects the development yeah. of the young Australian players. Well, that's a great question, Jess. And that is a huge debate that's going on right now uh, here in Australia. And uh, ironically, you asked that question. Um, and, and this week, uh, our new CEO, James Johnson, for Football Federation Australia, has, uh, has announced, he called it a starting 11, which is, uh, I think it's five ladies and, and six gentlemen of international experience. I, I've, I've been included as a volunteer concept um, to, to help uh, to sort of to say, you know, what's going on with the development of players. Um, I think that that is one of the things, you know, when I said to you about having ups and downs with the AE, there's, that is definitely one of the things. But I don't say, I don't see so much as to do with the A-League as to do with the general, the general system of Australian football and how it's changed and how, you know, the, the changes 
that there, that a lot a lot of the changes that were made uh, were, were made with every good intention, but just haven't quite worked out how everybody would like them to. And like I said, there's a massive push about that because there is no doubt that we are not producing the players that we once were. And and the ex-technical director who actually handed his resignation in about two or three weeks ago, would you believe? Um, Rob Sherman was his name. He actually came out with something uh, in one of his closing interviews, which I thought was very poignant, where he said, if you look at a young kid in, in Europe and a young kid in Australia at age 12, there's not much difference at all. By the time there's 18, there's a big difference between the kid in Europe obviously being better than the kid in Australia. And when somebody who's you know, who's well, who, who he resigned because he, he felt the frustrations of, of everything that was going on, sort of, you know, behind the scenes and so forth. When somebody says, somebody like that in that position says that, it really does sort of make you go, wow, what, you know, what is happening? And like I said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, there was nothing sort of out of the ordinary that we did when I was growing up. And when I grew up and I played for, like I said, Marconi and the team before Haydut, the local community club, and then Sydney Croatia, I was very fortunate to come across Ron Corrie. Um, and on mine, it being a goalkeeping as a specialised position, so I was very, very fortunate. It was an ex-international and had a lot of great experience and so forth. But the players that were produced during that time, there was nothing spectacular, so to speak. The vast majority uh, of, of training that people got was from, you know, people from that actual community who would give their spare time for absolutely nothing. And the other thing, which I know is a big issue in America as well, and it's a massive issue here, is the amount of money that it costs to play football. Now, uh, football is not like I said years before. It's it's not the most popular sport in the country, but it's the most participated. You know, there's over two million people playing football at all types of levels and all types of ages, and and indoor football as well, futsal. You know, during my day, um, I mean, obviously you got to allow for inflation, but it was it was next to nothing to play. It was it was just it was you know it was great. So. Um, we've, there's been massive debates, and you know, the next players uh, have chimed in recently. So. Um, like I said, the Football Federation of Australia have announced this. They call it the starting 11. Uh, it's a volunteer thing. And I volunteered and they asked me, I said, of course, so. well, as long as it's okay with my employees, which it was, um, you know, to sit down and just to coalesce ideas of how we can not only get things back on track, but, you know, to, to have them go further than they once did. Um, but the execution is going to be everything. Um, there's okay sitting down, me and you and Raf could sit down here for the next two hours and speak about a whole host of great ideas for everything. But what are we going to do about it? And I think it's got to that stage here because that's definitely one thing that you could say with the A-League. Um, although overall, in my opinion, it's been a success. That the one, the, the, one of the things that we, you know, I said about ups and downs, one of the downsides is the development of players. Um, and like I said, I don't think it's all the A-League, but you associate it obviously with that because that's the premier footballing competition in Australia. The development of players has really, really hasn't occurred to the extent that it did once before. There have been some, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, we've got Matt Ryan and, and Aaron Moy who, who began their careers in the A-League and grew up and they're playing for Brighton Hove Albion in the Premier League, there's other players around, you know, there's Matthew Leckie playing in Germany, players playing around the world, but not at the clubs that people once were and in the amount that they once were. So there's something obviously that, that needs to be uh, tinkered with and, to, and to, be, to be fixed. But the most important thing then is going to be execution. Yeah, and your, in your opinion with, with that, everything you just said, do you think it's best for, for these young players to develop in Australian football youth and, and make the move to Europe very early? Or do you think it'd be best for them to start playing maybe professionally in the A-League at age 16, 17, and then being bought in Europe at age 18 after, or age 19, 20 even, after a few years playing professionally in the A-League? What, in your opinion, what is the best way for an Australian player to develop and, and have a great career in Europe? 
Well, that's a super question. Um, and my answer is going to be tainted with my experience. Um, and when I say tainted, I mean that in the best possible way. So I, I would go for the, the former, the first thing that you said. Um, I always tell parents of players and players themselves, you know, obviously parents have a lot of fears, but, you know, the, the earlier that you can let your child go uh, overseas, I think is the better for them because they'll never come back a worse player and nor a worse person. It, it's a great life experience as well. Um, there's another school of thought uh, which is the, the latter thing that you said about letting them stay here for a little bit longer. But right now, at this moment in time, I, I would be saying I would be saying to let them go as soon as they possibly can. Because unlike the past, when the, you know when only had part-time football to come back to, you can always come back. You know, if things don't work out for whatever reason that may be, it might not be because of the football, it might be because of the lifestyle, whatever you don't know. Um, you can always come back and there's a professional league to come back to, which there wasn't. So from my personal experience, uh, that that would be my opinion. Yeah, and, and to piggyback off of that, Mark, I have to ask, I've never been to Australia. I've only spoken to to a few of your countrymen. Can you give us an idea maybe of what the of what the mindset is like when it comes to Europe for Australian players? Because I think Raphael was talking about lifestyle before. That might sound silly, but people yeah. very easily forget that these these are footballers are, are people. <laughs> they they, they do things outside yeah. of football, and that, that point is, is still true when it comes to whether or not a player wants to go yeah. thousands of kilometers away from home to play in Europe. So yeah. different countries have different mindsets towards whether they want to go abroad, whether they want to stay home. What's the, what's the Australian mindset? Well, I, I think that, well, the Australian mindset of people I've spoken to, and, I, and it, it has been a cross-section, but it's not everyone. But from the, from the, from the boys that I've spoken to and, and their parents, the mindset is that they all want to do it. Um, but there's one thing wanting to do it. It's another thing then doing it. You know, the first time things start going wrong and you're so far away from home and it's freezing cold uh, and it's not quite what you thought it would be, that's then becomes the true test of really do you want to stay and, and to continue with it. Um, but the mindset is that has always been positive. That, you know, people and and that I've spoken to on the vast majority all all still want to go. Um, but like I said, wanting to go and doing it are two different things. A little bit like I was saying about that um, that little committee that starting level has been formed. You know, there's no doubt we'll be collecting uh, a lot of ideas and all that. But then executing it, that's a different story. Yeah, especially when you do have a successful A League. I mean, I, I'm a big. I think the A League has done a really good job uh, just from from my side and, and getting to watch it over the years and the way that it's really improved and expansion. And that's where we want to go next with the expansion that's occurred the last few years and, and more teams being added to the Melbourne metropolitan area or Sydney metropolitan area. It's very interesting to me. Do these cities have the appetite to have three football clubs? Well, I, I think definitely Sydney and Melbourne do. Um, I mean, the population of Sydney is 5 million. I think Melbourne is, is coming up close to 4 million. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. Sydney and Melbourne definitely do. Um, like I said, you know, when I was talking before about promotion and relegation, my ideal uh, thing, and it has been for, for a long time, is that it should always be down to sporting merit. Um, but, you know, that's not the case. So you've got to work with, with what you have. Um, but definitely in Sydney and Melbourne, there's, there's more than enough people um, and, uh, and a fan base to support uh, three, maybe even four sides I think eventually, you know, you have to have a team in the capital, Canberra. Um, there's another major city south of Sydney called Wollongong, um, which is about an hour, hour and a half away from Sydney. I think they have to look at having a team there. People have spoken about a second team in Brisbane or a second team in Adelaide. That's all well and good. Obviously, there's Tasmania as well, um, which there's no sport, major sporting code down there with the exception of cricket. Um, so, you know, Hobart, which is the capital city of Tasmania, uh, or Launceston, the second biggest city, are things that they should be looking at. But right at this moment in time, because of the situation in, in terms of the COVID-19 and 
and and because there's been a, a, a there has there has been a little bit of an upheaval um, behind the scenes in Australian football over the last couple of seasons. Um, I think the most important thing as we go forward is to make sure that you know that there is a top league. Um, there will be no doubt about that. But the way it looks, I think we might have to do a little bit of you know instead of I understand strategic thinking, you want to think forward and this that and the other. But I think we're going to have to do a little bit more what I call adaptive thinking, i.e you know, just sort of just to do things as, as they occur and adapt to things and the situations uh, as they eventuate. Because, it, you know, this situation that we're all facing all around the world uh, with this virus has, has really thrown all the chips up in the air. And, and at this moment in time, it's very difficult to predict, especially sport. And coming back to what you said before, Raf, about some of the smaller leagues, which we are one of them, of how uh, things are going to pan out in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tricky. I was reading the, the president of the Australian Association talking about how he doesn't know if all the teams will be able to survive uh, this crisis. And let's just hope they do. Uh, but, but going back now to, to the A-League, and in, in a league, and I'm sorry that I keep going to MLS. In MLS, you can, there's always bigger cities. There's always owners with more money. There's always ways to grow the league. At, at some point, even if you add uh, clubs to all those cities that you mentioned, how do you grow the football in Australia without just adding expansion teams? What is what needs to be done for the for the league to grow and develop? And where do you yeah. see the A League in fifteen years from now? Assuming that you can only add three or four more or five more or whatever amount of teams more yeah. because of the population of the country. Well, if, if you're talking about where ideally, and and again, this is not from a pragmatic point of view, but from an idealistic point of view, and I, I like to dream like this anyway. It's important to dream. You always have to dream. Yeah, exactly. 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 So I think it's important, number one, number one, above it, that the product continues to get better and better and better. Okay? And then ideally, if if you did uh, have the finances for for each team, um, because some teams play out of maybe uh, stadiums that are a little bit too big for them at the moment and they're used for other sports, that, but that for each team to have their own little boutique stadium. So for a team like Melbourne Victory, who are the biggest supported team uh, in Australia, no, no problem for them to play at, uh, at the grounds that they play at because they get those big crowds. Uh, for other teams, so you've got a team like Brisbane Raw right this moment in time who played a stadium called Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane, which is a wonderful, wonderful stadium. But it holds 40,000 people and their average is around about 10 or 11,000. So to get a boutique stadium of around 15, 20,000 um, that, that the club's own w- would be absolutely ideal. Uh, I think that's very, very important. Uh, at this moment in time, the A-League plays in the, pre- predominantly in the summer months. Uh, the rest of football play predominantly in the winter months. Uh, and our, our winters and summer are the opposite to the Northern Hemisphere. So our summer months are like, you know, the spring starts in September and the summer, you know, the summer ends at the end of February. So just so people know. So ideally, um, you know, when it's feasible and whenever to, to link the pyramid up all together, so everybody plays at the same time, wherever that best may be. Uh, and, and to have, you know, we, we still don't have a, a, a domestic transfer market. That's so important. And like I said at the beginning, to have promotion relegation, that would be the ideal scenario for 15 years. That's, that's what I think, you know, we could dream about and, and go towards. But short term and from a pragmatic point of view, and especially after this virus, the most important thing is sustainability. Because, you know, like you've mentioned before, and, it's, and there's no doubt there are um, several clubs in the A-League and especially it's been exacerbated by this situation who are in a financially precarious position. So that needs to be, you know, that needs to be sorted out as soon as it possibly can. Yeah, Mark, I, have, I, I think we'll, we'll hit you with a couple more questions as even though they keep 
more and more popping into my head is you just brought up the domestic transfer market, a lot of interesting things. But before maybe I ask you a question about that, just to add one one thing to what you're just saying or to ask a question similar to Raphael's, but to, I guess to phrase it a bit differently, where do you see the, the A-League in terms of, like, if you look at MLS, right, at least right now, yeah. it's it's a developing league for sure, but you also still no doubt have players coming to MLS because it's the United States, because they're making a lot of money to grow their brand, a lot of things mm-hmm. like that. And again, you can argue one way or the other, whether that's detrimental or a positive thing or yeah. maybe somewhere in between. Do you see, and again, the United States doesn't have, you know, the domestic league clubs, they have the CONCACAF Champions League, but no one's going to compare that to UEFA. There are things that, yeah. that might put a cap on where the United States can go in terms of whether people will, will really take it seriously as a footballing league. Do you see the A-League mm-hmm. as, do you see them eventually fitting in sort of like an MLS where it's a destination, the level is good, the money is good, and that'll help the domestic players develop, it'll help the Aussie national team? Or do you think that it can really reach very, even higher, high heights when it comes, especially to the level of the football? Yeah, well, put it this way, uh, 211 nations play football, all right, 211. So more more nations play football than are members of the United Nations. And out of those 211 nations, you could say four, maybe five, if you want to count uh, the French uh, league in, but four definitely. The Bundesliga in Germany, Serie A in Italy, and La Liga in Spain, and the Premier League in England are the top leagues. Every great player of the of the of the earth of those 211 all look to go towards that destinations. I can't see that changing for for quite some time, but one never knows. And that's what I'm saying. You know, one never knows. And and in terms of the uh, in terms of the A League. You know, I see it as a, as a three-tiered system in, in terms of what you're talking about. Young players coming through, you know, to cut their teeth before they before they maybe want to go overseas or, or whatever. The middle tier of players, which are a compilation of, of really good foreigners that I talked about before and really good Australian players for whatever reason, either they've come back from overseas or they, they're happy to stay here or whatever. Uh, and, and the third tier, your sprinkling of, of marquee stars who, who may not be quite the players that they were, but who give that who give that little bit of oomph, that little bit of profile to them. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about your Del Pieros. So that's how I see it. Basically, you know, for for the short to medium term, put it that way. And also, like I keep saying to people, there's no shame in that as well. We're sat here right now, and a lot of people, if they listen to this, they're probably saying, "Oh, you're dreaming, or it's not going to happen, or whatever." And it may not. But one day, you know, I know you got Concacaf over there. We've got our Asian Champions League. Um, you know, there's the Copa Libertadores in South America, the UEFA League that you mentioned as well, the African you know, national uh, their Champions League. Um, you know, one day there might be a World League. You don't know. You don't know. So I think the most important thing is that everybody, you know, tries to get their league to get to the best stage possible. And the realization that you know the best players in the world, whether they be from Brazil, Argentina, um, they're always going to be wanting to play in one of those top four stroke five. You could say French, just say five leagues, say the French league as well. And and for for quite you know that's going to be the, that's going to be the situation for for quite some time. And I've got no issue with that whatsoever. And like I said, I also got no issue with leagues like the MLS or the A League or, or you know any leagues around the Korean League or the Japanese League or the Chinese. You know you know being what they are. Um, and and there's no problem with that whatsoever. The most important thing is to develop really good players, not only for themselves, so they can have fantastic careers and wherever it may be around the world. But like you said as well, you mentioned that for the national team. So the better players you get, and then all of a sudden we all come together every four years for a World Cup, and now it's going to be expanded, um, you know, from 2026 onwards. So you have basically a quarter of the nations in the world, 48 of them, you know, playing it. That you know, we, we you know everyone has more of a chance of doing well because we've all seen what our national teams doing well at World Cups can do can do for the sport, and it's a great feeling. 
We have two more questions for you, and they, they were per, they're literally what you just spoke about. And, and obviously, everyone in Europe and in the world on the Tuesday night and Wednesday night, Champions League, everyone loves to watch it. But I think mm. there isn't that much knowledge or understanding about how big uh, the Asian Champions League is and how big, how, you know, how big the clubs are. And in Australia, is the average fan there excited to say to his, his mate at the pub, uh, you know, I'm excited that we're going to play in the Asian Champions League group stage. Is it something meaningful in Australia? Because we know in yeah. the world they don't know much about it. But in Australia, is it something that Correct. supporters of these clubs are proud of? Yeah, very much so. Support, I'm going to say football supporters are. Um, although, you know, one would turn around if they were listening to this and say, well, Mark, you know, some of the attendances haven't been great. Uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, um, you know, the culture of Europe of going to games in the midweek, I don't know what it's like in the US, but the culture of games of going to, the, going, uh, to games as a spectator in midweek in Australia is, isn't what it is in Europe. But that goes for pretty much every, every sport. You know, everyone, you know, they're more interested in the fact, you know, they've got to go to work tomorrow or you've got to get the kids to school, they want them in bed and so forth. Um, but, we, you know, we had one winner, Western Sydney Wanderers, um, uh, who were one of the new teams who came into the league and who had been absolutely phenomenal. They won the Asian Champions League way back in 2014. And it was absolutely fantastic. It really was. It's the premier, you know, it's the premier club competition in our region. Um, there, there needs to be changes for that as well i think and because you know no the, the, the crowd situation but i think you know there's there's east asia and there's west asia and sometimes the travel can can become very very difficult for teams you know you're talking about maybe say an a-league team playing on a saturday then having to travel eight or nine hours um you know to play on a wednesday and then having to come back so something maybe needs to be sorted out with that but you know in terms of you know i i can't relay on this uh, conversation how excited I get, you know, as a commentator when I know that, you know, that one of our teams are playing against, you know, one of the best teams in Asia. It really is, for me, a fantastic competition. Um, but uh, but like I said, um, you know, coming back to my original point, what I said, we know what the European Champions League is, the league. You've got the best players. For me, the Champions League is even better than, than the World Cup. And I don't mean that to offend anyone. But it's, it's because you've got the best players playing with and against the best players, regardless of where you're from, so to speak. So, you know, it, it is a it's fantastic brand of football. And it comes back to my original argument about, you know, what are the most you know biggest concerns? That is the number one concern. It always has been, always will be to get, you know, to get the best brand of football um, from your players. And, and, you know, you get the best brand of football from your players, no matter where you are in the world, people want to watch. Here's my last question for you. I've, I've always been excited to ask this to, to people that, uh, that I'm sure have an interesting opinion on it. As a former member of the Australian national team, what yeah. was it like for you to, to have to play, you know, the, all the countries in the Asian region? If, for some reason, Australia yeah. was put in UEFA, let's say, for one World, cycle, mm. world uh, Cup cycle, how do you think you guys mm. would do? Um, in UEFA, I can only go off my experience. I mean, and from my experience, I, I didn't even play in Asia. Uh, it was only, uh, I think it was 2006 to around there that Australia was accepted into the Asian Confederation. Yeah, because they had they played in their first Asian Cup in 2007. Before that, uh, when I was playing for Australia, we were in Oceania, which was like you know New Zealand, uh, the island nations like Fiji, Papua New Guinea, you know Tahiti, Vanuatu, uh, uh, the list goes on. So I didn't have that privilege of playing in the Asian in 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 the Asian Confederation. It's great. It's really for me. It's really. It's not only an eye open of how good some of these teams are, but it really helps to improve the standard. Uh, if Australia were to be situated, you know, in Europe, uh, how would we go? Look, I, I you know, I, I would fancy us still to, you know, to be up, up, up there and about, to, you know, to qualify. 
um, it would obviously be more difficult. But you know, that, what is it now in in UEFA? I think it's like 56 countries now. You know, I, I think would be you know a, a mid mid power uh, in Europe. I, I'm quite confident of that. Uh, with with the ability both to go high and lower, depending on depending on. <laughs> Uh, how, how we would be, uh, but that 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 would be my that would be my estimate right at this moment in time. If Australia were in uh, Concacaf, or I mean, what I'm trying to understand is, in, do you think it's good for the Australian national team to compete with teams from the region, or do you think it'd be better for them if they were in? Uh, the reason I ask is because there's been a lot of you could say controversy or whatever that Australia will, will be participating in the Copa America. Oh, I thought that was an honour to be invited. Obviously, um, uh, the Copas got called off because of the virus, but I thought it was an absolute honour and a privilege to be invited to that. Um, I was so happy for Australian football. I think it was a, a wonderful opportunity, and hopefully, we'll be able to take that you know up again next next year. Hopefully, we don't know obviously everything that's going on, but I thought. That was a, that was a wonderful thing for Australian football to be invited to that. But in terms of playing in Asia, like I said, it's a privilege and an honour. And you know, since I've been back in 2008, so I've seen what I think one, uh, one, two, three Asian Cups. Australia's won one of them, albeit it was at home, but still, they were fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And the people really took to the Asian Cup here in Australia in 2015. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. Some of the games were, were 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 really great. I mean, I remember there was a quarterfinal in in Canberra of all places between Iran and Iraq, and it went to penalties. It was a phenomenal game, three three, and a packed out stadium. So it's a real honour and privilege not only to play in that championship, but to be involved with, with the Asian Cups as well. Um, but the, the invite to the Copa, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then if there was any controversy and all that, I'm sorry, but. Um, from from well from my perspective, living down here, it gives the opportunity for our players to pit their wits against the very best. A fantastic fillet for the game. It's just a shame um, that we weren't able to fulfil it. The virus has caused so many so many things for people all over the world. It's very very frustrating. There's going to be a, yeah, there's going to be a big backlog. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's going to be some backlog, and we as you know, we just have to come together in the world and figure out a way to yeah. get through it because it's, you know, it's just... We will, a, we will. I hope so. My last question, what can yeah. we look forward to in the A-League in the coming year? You know, idealistically, um, like I said, 16-team competition, um, you know, a, a second division, promotion relegation, teams owning their own stadiums or at least playing in boutique stadiums, thriving youth system, and the players coming through left, right and centre being bought and sold domestically and, and also internationally and an Australian team that continues to qualify for the World Cup and, and hopefully surpasses um, what the 2006 boys achieved in getting to the round of 16 and, and goes even further and, and also from a club's perspective to become a you know to become an Asian powerhouse you know we've only won since, since the time we're beginning the Asian Champions League we only had one winner and we've only won the Asian Cup once as a nation. So I'd like to see that uh, occur at more regularity. And that, for me, that, that would be, you know, getting to the top of the mountain. But the, the hardest thing to do once you get up the top is to stay there. That would be a time to say, right, you know, this is brilliant. Let's just keep this going. Go on record again. I think that Elik has done an amazing job as a country of 25 million people to, to, to really have the, the league continue to expand, continue to grow. And as you said, it, it looks like the future is really, really bright. Well, we hope so. Like I said, with this situation, um, with, with the virus and everything, and uh, it, it really has, uh, you know, thrown a massive question mark um, in terms of how the future is going to be and how it's going to look. But, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was saying to Raphael as well that what the A-League has done in the last, it was founded, what, in 2004, correct? To go from 
from I think it was I, I, I think it might have been a bit late I think it might have been 2005 I think uh, you better check that I think the NSL uh, ended in 2004 so I guess 2005 right so yeah so I think go, the A-League started 2005 or 2006 yeah right so to go from from 2005 I mean that's 14 15 seasons to mm. to the level that the a-league has reached is i think is really incredible and it's probably a an yeah. underrated story in world football i mean we we talk about the u.s mm. canada is similar where they're just trying to get the cpl off the ground yeah. they're not they're not they're not going to have any promotion relegation i think the the population in canada is almost the same as australia they're both massive physically there's a lot in common and i think canada the cpl anyone listening to this that's that's hoping that the cpl pulls through this this crisis and ends up being a mm. successful league i think they would they would be overjoyed to have the the type of success in 15 years that the A-League has had. So, mm. yeah, I, that's, uh, I think what's happened so far has really been been remarkable. Well, uh, like I said, I, I would say thank you, but it's down to other people rather than me. And, and like I said, it has had a, <laughs> its up and down. And, um, and uh, you know, with this situation now as well, like I said, there's a big question mark in terms of how things are going to look when we come out of all this. Like, like I said to you before, um, I think the, the, the ideal thing is um, for, for us to, to, to all pull together um, here in this country and to make sure what it, whatever comes back and however it comes back in whatever shape or form uh, that we just try to get the best of everything and everyone um, that, that's playing the game. That's all just to do the best for us uh, in, in terms of what I say in terms of us in terms of the football community. It's, uh, we have a long journey but I think we'll all get through it together. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did and I hope that Australian football can, can get through this and survive. And uh, I think all Australians listening to this will, will look forward to hearing you commentate again. So I hope that we will get to that very soon. Thank you very much. And Raphael and Jess, thank you both very much. I hope your family and friends and yourselves, you stay very, very safe. And yeah, I've just looked at that. We've been speaking for over an hour. It feels like five minutes anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, appreciate it, Mark. Stay safe, man. Take care. Woo!